Welcome to Conlanger, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Poorly. With me down the roadways is William Annitz. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentzi. Hello. And how are you guys doing? <laughs> yes, very hot. In need of air conditioning, but uh, enjoying the sunny weather. It's, it's, it's been a very hot summer recently. And uh, I was just telling the guys... Last night, apparently, they had fireworks early. That's normal for the hmm. this thing that goes on in Madison. It's been going on for years called Rhythm and Booms. It's mostly, you know, I don't know who all pays for it. I don't think it's the city. Hmm. Um, and it's a huge big deal, and fireworks go on for a half hour. And George was a little too close, apparently. Yes, where I live was, was uh, very, very close. But I didn't see any. I just heard them. Right. Where I went once to the show at the previous location and was so close to the water that I had um, debris falling on me from the sky. Wow. Oh, wow. Burning debris. Um, I think any of it was burning, but getting ashes in your eyes is a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I kind of wonder if, um, though, if... Uh, Part of the the sound is coming from like it reflecting off the lake or something because sure it, and all of the crazy buildings on campus there could be all sorts of fun yeah sound engineering going on there because that was louder explosions that I've heard at any fireworks show <laughs> so anyway uh, a small programming note uh, many of you will know that I am getting married on July twenty sixth. Congratulations. And so uh, I'm coming out with this episode. We're recording this rather late, but um, I'm thinking about the logistics of putting out a the, the August Con Langery, and I'm not sure what's going to happen, whether it's going to be like put out later or maybe I can uh, uh, pull out stuff from that uh, earlier discussion I had with uh, – with David and Christoph and making an episode or something, but or we could just do a summer break because George is getting married. I think that yes, I could. I could <laughs> just. I could just. Um, I could. I could just miss it. It's. It's kind of. I hate to miss miss episodes anymore because we're a monthly podcast now. But it may be what I have to do. Yeah. Mm. So uh, we'll see uh, what goes for that. Um, so. Don't be surprised if there's some some change for the August one, <laughs> if or possibly not an August conlangery at all. So just wanted to give people a heads up. But today we have a topic. We mentioned this language before in our Zonal Oxlangs episode. It's called Afrihili. And uh, we have William to actually thank for... For um, for actually getting some things together and writing a Fiat Lingua article about this, uh, because uh, what you you found several copies of was it Ni Afrihili Oluga? Yes, Ni Afrihili Oluga, of which there are less than ten copies in the entire United States, as far as I'm able to tell. Okay, and that includes both editions. Um, there are three or four libraries that have the second edition. Um, two in Illinois, I think one in Ohio, and the Library of Congress. And that's it. <laughs> and through the power of interlibrary loan, I was able to uh, get copies. 
that's quite amazing to yeah. get uh, a rare book like that through in a library loan. Yeah, that was nice. Yes. Um, so um, before that, people had only had uh, sometime in the eighties or nineties. I forget when. I don't have the notes in front of me. Some member of the Conlang L mailing list, I believe. Um, had found a copy of a version, I think the first edition of the book, um, at uh, some library in New York, and made a few notes and posted them to a conline, either mailing list um, or possibly um, Usenet group. And so we had a few little bit of information about that. And then uh, Blench, who's the big um, African linguist, also had a little bit of information about the language, including a um, one-sheet newsletter. Um, got posted online. And for a long time, that was pretty much the totality of information available about Afrihili. Um, because the Library of Congress had a copy, Afrihili has its own ISO code. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, and sort of they started, I mean, the ISO um, language code started out with something from uh, the Library of Congress, and then the ISO adopted it. And so Afrihili has been dragged along through every version, even though knowledge about the language is very, very small. Yes. Uh, so uh, just to, to get the overall picture of it, Afrihili is uh, what we call a, a zonal oxlang, an auxiliary that's for a particular region of the world. And um, it has source languages from all over Africa. I'm I'm sure the like the Healy part of Afrikaans comes from Swahili, Swahili, and yes. and Swahili is a big source language. But you found a lot of other possible source languages in there. Yeah, correct? when I wrote the paper, that was one of my um, jobs for myself was to find etymologies where possible. It may be that he simply made up words from time to time, but when I could, I found. Um, uh, etymologies both for words and for grammatical constructions. Uh, and just recently I discovered a new one. I learned that um, a derivation to indicate, a verb derivation to indicate that you're pretending to do something where you do reduplicate the root and then add the suffix lu comes from wolof. Oh, okay. Which I just discovered a few days ago. So that was exciting. That's cool. Yeah. So we have Swahili, we have Wolof, there's also Hausa in there, and Yoruba. Hausa, Yoruba, um, Zulu, Cholafoni, Kinyarwanda, Malagasy, which is fun, um, mm -hmm. Kikongo. Uh, Malagasy is fun because it's an Austronesian language. Oh, okay. <laughs> With a strong sort of uh, Bantu influence, uh, but yeah. Uh, Tui was a big source language. Um, Possibly other languages of Ghana were since the guy who invented it um, is Ghanaian. So we should uh, say that the guy who invented the language is named Kumi Atobra um, from Ghana. On the Wikipedia article, he's listed as a historian, but I think that he was a civil engineer. I was able to find a notice in an African policy journal, um, what looks like a press release from him to them talking about the 25th anniversary of Afrihili. Um, and there he was described as a civil engineer. So I suspect that's more likely. Oh, okay. Oh, he did write other books. He did write other books, which might have led people to believe he was a historian. All right. And you say that um, you, you, you actually said in your paper, it looks like, even though he didn't 
specifically reference it. He looks like he was he was uh, trying to make this language for um, the Pan African movement, or as sort of a, a part of those ideals. Yes, Pan Africanism was a, a big movement in Africa um, through a long. It's got a long history. Um, but it was a really big deal in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, the first president of Ghana, who's one of the people that uh, uh, the book is dedicated to, was a big Pan-Africanist and actually said that all Africans should learn Swahili um, just to ease um, communication. Um, and Pan-Africanism is, is sort of a post-colonial attempt to, uh, you know, have Africa be for Africans and not just Africans, but, you know, diaspora, um, hmm. you know, situation as well. It could be extremely um, politically radical. It doesn't seem like um, Autobra was particularly radical um, because there's almost no mention. I mean, there's no mention outright of Pan-Africanism at all in the book, although there are, you know, occasional examples that lead you to believe that this was his motivation. And when he said why it was created, right, he's trying to promote unity and understanding among the different peoples of the continent. And then, you know, other things, reduced translation costs, promote trade, all the usual things. Yeah, it definitely is in some ways like sort of a similar, uh, a, a, in, in the style of the language construction and the ideals behind it, it looks like it is sort of in a similar vein to uh, Esperanto. Um, maybe Esperanto, more like some of the pan-Slavic languages. True. Which often also are allied with a political movement to unify all the Slavic peoples under one system. Right, sort the, of right. the the actual uh, Esperanto didn't grow out of a political movement. Oh, I mean, it was created. a political movement, but just not one that was um, specified to a particular continent or group, right. necessarily. Um. One thing, looking at the, looking to the actual language, one thing that struck me several times as I was looking through is that it is very regular in many places and it does have some of these sort of oddities that can remind you of other sort of Oxlangy things where things are a little bit too systematic. Sure. But in the same vein, like, it doesn't remind of Esperanto in the sense of Esperanto is, you know, very much strictly agglutinating and and concatenative. There are some interesting things going on with vowel changes and reduplication and stuff, probably because of the different source languages sure. dealing with. Yeah. Everything um, except circumfixes are found in this language. Prefixes, infixes, and suffixes are all present in some degree. It is extremely regular. That is absolutely true. There are a few places where, in the interest of speed um, or simplicity, however you want to define that, there are m modest changes that add a, just a tinge of irregularity. But for the mm -hmm. most part, the language is very regular. Yes, absolutely. And you sort of expect that of an Oxlang. Yeah, I was actually surprised to see some of those cases where there were irregularities or places where speakers seem to be given like an arbitrary choice like uh what preposition the ad positions can be before or after right very confusing to me there, there's no overt discussion about how that choice is made at all it mm. appears to be up to the speaker 
Um, hmm. In writing, I would think that could potentially be confusing. Although, I mean, normal intonation patterns would remove any it would remove any ambiguities in speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, as such, like, there's not that much interesting to say. I want to have just a mini rant of. You know, you describe, you summarize the, 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 uh, like the sound system. Exactly. It's was... a complete copy of what he did. Yep. Yes. And, um, What's that, that is not how I would ever describe a sound system. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't even mind, like, the, because obviously he was probably writing his book for a general audience. So not using, you know, IPA, which, sure. It's hard to Which say. Which may if not he, have existed in the late sixties. Um, when this I, was written, I, I'm, I thought, I think it may have, and a version of it may have been there by then. But in any case, like that's not such a big issue. Although you know, some of his like his a as in sat. I'm like, I have, I am doubting whether he has the one. Uh, Low sound like that, and it's ah. <laughs> I'm, I'm right. Well, he's probably. I mean, Ghana, as I understand, was a British colony, so he's probably imagining some British pronunciation. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Although I, and it may be more uh, appropriate to to um, his audience to to think of it that way. But uh, the other thing is, like, he has th and hw are not used. No, that's really funny. He gives them. Pronunciations, but in nowhere in the entire book did I ever see them used. Mm -hmm. So the um, on the vowels, it's a similar in pronunciation to, lo to in local language script. Are they written with those symbols there, or is that saying local languages? Um, what is that? What right. do I mean there? Right. So you've got the the normal five vowel set a e i o u, um, or rather a e i o u. But you also have um, Open versions of a and a, right? Which is the the little epsilon and the backwards upside down c um, from IPA. Those are used in languages of the region a lot. Yeah, in their orthographies in their orthographies. Huh. Yeah, it's it's sort of a thing of uh, a lot of African languages have that distinction that, and that it's seven just, vowel system. Yeah, yeah, and so they they just sort of came upon just using those symbols because it's easier to do. You can add diacritics to both of them. And if you need tone, like yes. Yeah. Yoruba uses um, under dots. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So, and, that's, um, what, that's, what he, that's what he means by that. And I assume he's also sort of giving... I mean, he's very vague about where the accent's supposed to go. He's like, oh, it can go second to last, but wherever. Um, so, my guess is he's, this is another attempt at simplification to make it easier for people to learn. Yeah, yeah with the... Um I wish they had more a more descriptive phonemic inventory. Like I'm not sure if the apostrophe is a glottal stop or is just separating um, it's affixes. An it's just an illusion. Yeah, uh, that's that's yeah. what I would pres presume. And it's not always written. On, what? And yeah. it's not always written. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just based on where it occurs, that that wouldn't make much sense for a glottal stop. Although uh, you could have a language that has it, but in those positions. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um. You said that there's syllabic nasals. Where did, like, did he, he didn't mention that it was. No, he didn't, but I don't know how else you'd pronounce Mbele. Okay. I, I never knew that those 
were syllabic necessarily. It might be or, like a pre-articulated or something. It could be. I, th- I thought they were just clusters. Nasalized? No. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. They're syllabic. Okay. Well, that, that's my guess. I, I don't know how you. Yeah. Is um is the J is that an affricate or is that the approximant or what is that? That is an affricate. Okay. Yeah, that's the that's what I would presume. When all anyway, else fails, pretend it's Swahili. <laughs> anyway, that that these are all like minor details in the in the sort of phonological description. I was just uh, making a note about it. You know, in that, you know, there's there's things like he seems to be marking vowel length by doubling the vowel, yep. but he didn't say that? Nope. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, just uh, this is not a good example of how to lay out phonology. Right. Um, Chui, which I'm guessing he was a native speaker of, does have um, contrastive vowel length, so that's probably what's motivating that. Yeah, yeah. And it's not um, rare in languages of Africa to have that distinction, but it's not... It's hardly universal. Just sort of moving down through your uh, paper, William, the first like thing where we see sort of... So he, he ended up importing a lot of semantic stuff from English. Yeah. Whether he intended to or not. Yes. And uh, the pronouns are the first place where you get that. You get both, you know, because of the their sort of ends up end up being affixes on the verb and often that you get you know the influence and obviously the they are taken from african languages but he has the three singular split into he she and it yep and then and then no split in the plural right so that's mm. exactly english i don't think i i i, I am not I don't think any of the languages of the area would necessarily do that. Maybe yeah. some of them. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think that's definitely English. And there are other things where, like, um, compound prepositions are very English. Like, he has instead is one word, and instead of is two words that perfectly oh, match English okay. instead and pay of. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, not always, but many, uh, much of the vocabulary is defined by single word English glosses. Ah, uh, that's that that ends up being an issue. Well, again, you know, he's he's that may be a, uh, an artifact of how the book was written. It is written in a very strange format. It looks like A4 folded in half. So it's a very long, tall, narrow book, um, crammed with information. Wow. Okay. Um. <laughs> so there's there are space constraints, and there are other pieces of vocabulary which are clearly he had. He devoted much loving attention to and are not like English in any way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that sometimes happened is I don't, I have no idea what his sources were. Um, my guess is he had access to a library with the grammars and dictionaries of various languages of Africa, and he did not always pay very close attention to subtleties from those dictionaries, I'm guessing, or the dictionaries themselves were simple word lists. For example, for me, uh, a notorious example, um, the word in Afrihili for club is iwisa, and I know that because he uses an example of um, a derivational system to describe somebody who's a member of something. So an iwisa means club member. The problem is that the Zulu word iwisa, which means club, is something you hit people with, not something you join. I see. So, 
This is not necessarily someone who speaks all these languages. So, right. I, I'm sure from he's where he up. is, he, he probably is multilingual, but he didn't Absolutely, know all. Absolutely, he's multilingual, but <laughs> Zulu is far from where he lived. Yes. Um, so is Malagasy. Uh, mm. So, yeah, there's these little uh, tidbits like that. Uh, another one, um, the word for pear is evoca, mm-hmm. um, which is the Malagasy word for alligator pear. I.e. an <laughs> avocado. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's <laughs> um, so there are a few things like that where you get some some uh, interesting um, uh, shifts in meaning that would be surprising to native speakers, just because his source is um, English dictionaries um, and probably not um, really great dictionaries um, of the languages that he's pulling from. Yeah, it's it's possible that he was not drawing from the best material, which. Uh, is, is kind of important. Um, a small note with the, the numbers. The only thing about those, they're very, the numbers are you, they're often very regular, so that's not a big deal. I didn't, I don't know of another, of, uh, a natural language that does this. He has like a, uh, all basically means times, and then he puts that into the derivational structure of, of like, uh, you have, uh, 10 times 2 is basically 20. Right. I don't know if I know of a language that does it quite that way. Yeah, it's very overt. Yeah. Because I think most languages come up with numbers before they come up with arithmetic, so. Right. <laughs> and um, I was disappointed to be never, I was never able to find an etymology for the number 9. Oh. All the others oh. I could find. Um, one thing I want to mention about the vocabulary as well is that lots of Africa, um, rather lots of Arabic comes uh-huh. into Afrihili both through Hausa and through Swahili. Okay, that's that that's that's to be expected, I yeah. would think. Yeah. Um, thinking, uh, just seeing, I would say, okay, number seven is Malagasy Fito. I uh, finally I caught up with with that enough to remember. Oh, Tagalog is uh, Pito, so right, exactly. Obviously, Related languages, so random Austronesian stuff. Yes, right. <laughs> with all these other languages. So, and we talked about ad positions can be before or after. Right. That 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 doesn't seem very normal to me. No. Like I can I can see more likely a language that has mostly prepositions and a few postpositions or something like right. that. Right. Um. But not like this apparently completely, completely free choice that he's giving, as far as I can see here. In his examples, there seems to be a a slight preference for using the postposition when the definite article is also used with the phrase. Mm -hmm. That that under that that can be understandable. Right. Right. So So we have the phrase "within time" is um, given as "en asico." Mm-hmm. And within the time is niasiko en. So, mm-hmm. um, another subtle calc from English, I think. I'm not sure. We could also reinterpret this as some side effect of verb serialization. Um, the prepositions can be used as adverbs mm-hmm. uh, without modification. Yeah. And actually, the verbs have uh, an interesting sort of carryover that possibly comes from English, not not in any way that they're formed or anything morphologically, but in the senses. There's 
Okay, there's a simple present, present progressive, past progressive, future progressive, perfect continuous. This is sounding familiar? Yeah. I, yeah, I agree that the, that system looks very English. But he does have a Hello. You okay? George. I'm fine. Did you, Are you just okay? take water have a problem? Uh, anyway, <laughs> he does have like, uh, a habitual tenses. Yes. With, um, what, apparently there's, um, well, there's vowel lengthening, but then there's one, one example that's, right, so one, that's you, uh, an exception. The, it seems the all. To, it's either an exception or a duplication. Yes. So to uh-huh. form a habitual, um, of one of the tenses, you lengthen the vowel of the tense prefix. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is then a special past habitual prefix, Leal. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Um, and then it, it, it has little bits from Swahili. So there's a past consecutive prefix, La, um, which is like Swahili Ka. So basically you establish a past event, and then for the equivalent of and then or and next, um, you use this La uh, tense prefix for the subsequent clauses. Oh, okay. So that's, oh, one, that's um, one use of Swahili ka. Oh, one thing I I highlighted here that I wanted to that I forgot to mention. So the um, the the uh, possessive forms of pronouns yes. have two different forms. Yes, and he actually basically manages co-reference using these different forms, sort of in a syntactic way. Yes. Basically using the, like the, the prepositional form for an earlier, uh, referent and the, the, the postposed form for a later referent. That's yes. an interesting way to do that. I don't know. I've never heard of a natural language that does that, but right. maybe there are languages that we, do. We do have languages in the region, so he may know them that have, um, uh, logophore. Separate sets right. of pronouns for determining who refers to what in um, indirect clauses, especially. Um, so but they don't be, work like that. Yeah, they don't work like this exactly. No, they have a different set. But this is him, you know, making use of the material. And these two different ways of forming possession are available for all persons in number. Only for the third person are they using this co-referentiality trickery. Um, the other right. ones, it's not clear. I mean, he uses the short ones most often. Um, and he gives us no rules about when the long ones might be used, except for the third person case. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just. Is it? Go um, ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, is it similar to like what in English you can say, you know, John's book or the book of John? Because I see there's the me, and then there's an n on afterwards. So I'm not sure if that's an echo vowel or if that's similar in that kind of duality in English. Uh, uh, this the second possessions are uh, adjectives. So to form an attributive adjective in Swahili, you rip off the initial vowel of the noun and you prefix it to the adjective and then you suffix an N to the adjective. Sounds like a Frankenstein mor- uh, morpheme. Yes, right. Um, right. Tear it off the adjective. Well, that's part of the, like, the entire, um, uh, gender system and stuff. Right. So. Yeah. So, um, palace is adrashi. And the word for nice is zuri, but a nice palace is adrashi azuri. Right. So these second possessive forms are just full adjective forms. And the reason they're written with a dash is because they need to agree with a noun. 
And he's, but he did that, but the vowels don't actually mean anything. Nope, they convey no semantic information at all. Yeah. Um, unless the plural is formed by replacing the initial vowel with the final vowel. Right. Again, <laughs> very sort of an odd device to me, but interesting. Right, right. So the word for glass, as in something you drink out of, is ekeni, and glasses would be ekeni. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this um, business with the the initial vowel, all nouns always start with vowels. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're used, both there's the swap for the plural marking, and there's this sort of structural kind of agreement that adjectives have. This mm-hmm. is clearly similar to stuff that happens in lots of Bantu languages, um, but it has no semantic meaning that I've been ever, ever able to notice. And in derivational processes, where you take verbs and turn them into nouns, or adjectives and turn them into nouns, you basically have something called the Healy triangle, um, uh-huh. which helps you determine what the prefix vowel of the noun is supposed to be based on the final vowel of the resulting morphological process. Okay. Hmm. So wait, that's so that's how the Healy triangle works. It's purely a phonological thing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, um, right. So in addition to managing possessive co-reference by having two different possessive forms, um, he tries to do more logophoric stuff um, with straight-up pronouns. Like he told him to bring him a book. Mm-hmm. So that's very confusing. Um, and for that, he basically has the normal third-person pronoun le, meaning he, reversed el. Uh-huh. So el, lika, le, que no de, el, iwe. So nice. The problem is, for me, is that's the only example in the entire book of how that's supposed to work. Uh-huh. The word for she is ta. The word for it is yo. And neither of those, as far as I'm able to tell, reversed form legal Afrihili words, which always end in vowels. Ah! Mm-hmm. Uh- or yes. N. Or N. Um, there are no words that end in stops or in glides, so I don't know what sort of form should be used for those. Uh-huh. So there there are some cases where it seems like he wasn't thinking things all the way through. He, looking, He thought about the issue, which definitely is an issue that if he's looking at textbooks of other West African languages, he's going to see this issue come up. So he came up with a system, but he gave an example and then moved on to other things. Like I said, the the book is very compressed. Right. Um, looking at the the Healy Triangle, I find it very interesting the choices that he made because at some level it looks like he's he's seeing a, a the rounding distinction, yeah. except that he doesn't have a paired with all. He has a paired with O, and then A paired with O. Yep. So, it's like he got halfway to something that we would recognize from formal linguistic stuff. Yeah, I don't know if he was aiming at maximal distance, or if he was... I, I have no idea how he decided to, to form this. Um, yeah. And one of the vowels has no part in this Healy triangle at all. The E is only used in... Like, if if you would end up with a noun that, were, that had all of the vowels identical... Uh-huh. Um, you don't use the normal prefix, you use e. Hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. And the reason for this is, if all of the vowels are already identical, how will you mark the plural? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. That makes sense. Hmm. 
So yeah, this this the this this is the point where I feel like this is breaking down as a possible IAL because the this word this 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 method of derivation is really difficult to learn. I think no, it's not that bad. It's not well, but it's a little it's a little bit more complex than I would want to put in. Maybe I don't know. As I we mean, have nothing. as we have discussed, the difficulty of the language really isn't what determines the success of a lingua franca or an IL. That's true, so. but the difficulty is something that people who create IALs aim to reduce. And right. here's the deal. How much of your time that you're interacting with an IAL are you actually coining new vocabulary? Mm, How much true. time in speaking any language are you coining new vocabulary? It doesn't happen very often. So if you have if you already know that fuwa is the verb for to die, and you encounter o fuwa, then you have a reasonably good idea um, of what the notion is about. Mm-hmm. Without having to go through the trouble of finding out, oh, is that the proper, you know, Healy triangle prefix? I mean, you know that the mm-hmm. words are related. Um, right. So it is an, an unusual system, but I don't know that it, it is um, impossibly difficult um, for uh, learners to acquire. Right. I would be interested if this, it's sort of sad that it was, it's not more successful because I would be interested uh, in seeing what this would turn into in a speaker population. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when I uh, read that um, press release, uh, uh-huh. which came out in 1987, mm-hmm. um, one of the things in the article is it mentioned that approximately a thousand people had learned the language to some degree that was never specified. Right. That's the best, and those are just people who contacted him. Right. So that's, that's as much as we know. Um, and I was not able to find any more information about it after that 1987 publication. And the thing is, when we have, you know, this, this guy talking about his own language, talking about approximately a thousand people he can't necessarily evaluate how good they are at the language. Right. And he may have a, a an interest in inflating the numbers, all sorts of things. You would think that if your language has existed for 25 years and you've only had a 1,000 speakers, you would come up with bigger numbers to inflate with. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that he would, like, necessarily deliberately falsify things. Sure. I would, I would say that someone... Who is who is promoting an IAL would try would end would end up taking the higher estimate. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just not not even necessarily consciously. Just trying. Just when they're estimating things, they'd they'd, they'd end up with a higher estimate. Sure. But um, so and you have some example text that you took directly from the book. I'm presuming. Um. The text that I put at the... I mean, all of the examples within the body, giving grammatical examples, are from the textbook. Um, the long example that I gloss at the end is from the uh, newsletter that Ben Lynch had found. And you did the glossing yourself? Yes. That? yes. That's uh, interesting. I find some of the little, like, odd choices I'm like, I wonder where these came from, because... <laughs> this, just like things like his punctuation 
Are there languages yeah. in Africa that do this with question mark and exclamation point at the beginning? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I don't know where he got that idea. Yeah, that that's really strange. So he this got is... he, he he claims that his his idea to his inspiration to create this um, language happened when he was traveling. It says when uh, in 1967 at sea when he was traveling from British Dover to French Calais. Um, so he's been traveled in Europe. Maybe he'd been through Spain and noticed that and decided it was a cool thing to use. Hello. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, here. I'm. I'm here. Okay. So, yeah. I guess that, that could have occurred to him, but it kind of points to something that I, I've seen in Oxlangs before. Is that sometimes people doing Oxlangs, they just end up inserting some of their pet ideas, even when it's not necessarily something that would be familiar to the audience. Sure. I don't know how, I mean, people get exercised about punctuation, but I don't know how alienating or difficult that really would be. It wouldn't be a big deal. Honestly, but it's just slightly an odd thing to decide on. Yeah, it's, I agree. I don't know where he got that idea. I don't. I'm not aware of any African languages that use that as a standard part of their orthography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are. Here's here's where I'm wildly speculating, and I I don't want to I don't want to uh, say that this is like a for sure thing because I don't want to. Um, to 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 um cast uh, aspersions on the guy, but there are African languages where you will find an exclamation point at the beginning of a word to mark a click sound. Sure, but I don't know. I again, I don't know to what extent anyone would necessarily be confused by that because if you end up seeing text in it, you will see that oh, this is like something that's attached to this word. Right. Yeah. I. That doesn't seem very likely because he would never have ever seen the question mark used that way. Right, that's true. Yeah. Um, one thing that I thought was an interesting mix of stuff is that Afrahili has at least three ways of forming relative clauses that I was able to find in the book. Mm -hmm. First, it can use a question word such as who or which, just like English mm -hmm. um, uh, or other Indo-European languages. Mm-hmm. Second, it can treat the verb stem like an adjective, so you get sort of a participle, participle, good William, a participle thing going on. Mm -hmm. um, and then at last, there's this relative word, ah, which links the noun to the rest of the clause. Um, we don't know how high up the referential hierarchy it can go. Um, we have examples where it's used for subjects and direct objects, um, and also places. But I don't know if an indirect object or a genitive could be attached um, mm -hmm. to a relative this way. Uh, so I thought that was interesting to have three different ways of doing that. I want to ask, I want to see, is this guy still alive? I have no idea. I tried to find information on him before I wrote the paper, but I was unsuccessful. Yes, because that, would be, that, that would be the one guy you could ask. Yes. Just like... Uh, just like for a real language, you need to find a native speaker. For for this language, you need to find the creator to ask questions. No, I did spend some time trying to find him, and I've tried more than once. I tried about two years ago as well to see if I could find someone who could tell me anything, but I've not been able to get any information later than that 1987 press release. Mm. So it's hard to tell. Yep. Um. Well, that's 
that's a very interesting. Are there other sort of points that we need to cover? Um, I wrote the article, and both the article and I have a web page describing the different kinds of derivation available. Um, and some of them are really interesting um, things that most of us speakers of uh, European languages in particular would not consider as things that we needed to have verb derivations to do. Um, right. So those, I think, are worth looking at for inspiration. Right. What page? Um, uh, what page? 17, yeah, you 17 should... and 18, and I, if you Google Afrihili, you'll also find a page where I give a big, big, much bigger list than I do in the paper. Oh, okay. Of, of derivational patterns. Um, one question I would like to ask you is, um, well, no, not question I would like to ask. One thing I would like to say about using this as inspiration, uh, do note if you're in the, the, the naturalistic crowd that this is an artificial language and it has some things that are very artificial about it. Oh yeah, there's so, no, there's no mistaking this for a natural language. Uh, yeah, obviously, just a lot of them are obvious, but you know, always, it, like it has the, a similar, like, correlatives chart that, it, like, Esperanto has. That's not a thing that tends to happen. Not this <laughs> regularly, no. No. It's not as fully regular as Esperanto's chart, but it's so like it in many ways that I can't help but think that he might have at least seen Esperanto at some point before it, um, making this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's entirely possible that he saw it because, and, it could have been part of part of the impetus behind making Afrikaans, but we don't know because we don't have access to the guy. Mike, you, have, you had you had a lot of you had some some notes that you were going through. Yeah, they were um, just kind of things that I thought, thought were interesting, and I'm not I'm not very well familiar acquainted with the languages of the area, so I don't know if that's something that he just liked or if that's something that's coming from Swahili or other languages that are in the area. For example, um, the echo vowel, I really like that. If you do reduplication, um, would that be considered like an underspecified vowel in there? Um, the echo vowel Like works, it's on yeah, page four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of a funny... So the echo vowel is you have various morphemes which are given um, in such a way that they can't naturally uh, attach without mm -hmm. help. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the passive suffix is listed as BW. Well, the word can't mm. end in that, so you need some additional vowel. So you simply repeat the previous one. So sana is to see, and then you add the passive, and you get sanabwa, which is be seen. Kabe advise, kabebwe to be advised. And that's not actually an unusual thing. That is something that does happen. Right. It's it's uh yeah. I don't know how to describe it. Echo vowel is just a term I came up for it because it's a systematic mm -hmm. process in the language. Um, it's it's like a repair strategy. It is it now, is like a, it, it is often a repair strategy, but there are prefixes where it is still used mm -hmm. where it would not be necessary, but it's still okay. there. Um, so it maintains. A, now does that? I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Go say what you were going to say. No, it maintains. A, I got. I have a note written down here, so I won't forget it. Yep. Um, yeah. I don't know. If, I, don't, I don't. I don't even remember what I was going to say about that. Yeah. It, it's a repair strategy often, but it as sort of a principle in its own. Yeah. I was going to mention, does this happen? I imagine this happens pretty early so that when vowels are swapped around and shifted for other kinds of declensions or whatever usage, 
this happens before all that, or mm -hmm. how does... It, yes, it happens in stages. You add the passive, you do this, and then if anything additionally happens, um, then you work from that new base. Mm. Uh, so that was one thing that I thought was pretty interesting, especially if you like reduplication. It's one way you don't have to keep thinking, oh, well, you know, you don't have to worry about um, barrel harmony or anything like that. Um, I know a lot of languages in that area have noun classes. Does this... Does uh, Afrahili have anything to do with that, or does it has it eliminated those? Nope, no noun classes at all. It has this formal apparatus that sort of mechanically looks like how the noun classes work. So this mm -hmm. this repetition of the noun vowel on the adjectives that agree with them um, looks a little bit like if you learn Swahili adjective agreement in Swahili. Um, However, but it's not like adjective agreement because the it, it, you stripped away the whole the the whole apparatus of the noun classes and right. just took the it's, like the formal morphology. Yes, it's purely mechanical. There, you use this vowel with this noun, this other vowel, this other noun. Um, mm. None of the other things you expect with noun classes are present. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Um, moving on to page seven. Um, it was interesting they mentioned the tense marking on the pronoun. Um, I think that was mentioned with the impersonal pronoun. Like it is. Uh, let me see where it is. Um, oh, the indefinite pronoun, second to last paragraph, which takes tense marking. Do, do languages of that area tense mark on the pronouns commonly? Uh, that's an interesting question. So the the whole ke series was very puzzling to me because not only does it work independently, um, it is attached to some verb stems. So if you already have a word for it, then you have this indefinite pronoun. And it's really hard sometimes to understand what he's doing. It's very commonly used in these constructions of obligation. So mm. something like, it is necessary that we'll use this keform. Um, so the example I give um, on page 7, kebidi amola kute de fabini, right? Children must obey their parents, and really means it is there's an obligation that children obey, for children to obey their parents. Um, uh, languages like Hausa and related languages have entire series of pronouns that look like the pronouns are being conjugated for tense. Mm -hmm. Tense and aspect and mood. So you have long charts of pronouns. This is your future pronoun. This is your, um, you know, your subjunctive pronoun or whatever. And there are bunches of these. What's really happening is you have um, highly reduced auxiliary construction mm -hmm. um, that looks like inflected pronouns. But I don't know if there's something like this indefinite pronoun generally. I didn't see it in any of the languages I looked at, and I focused most of my attention on uh, Swahili, Hausa, Yoruba, and Chui, where I could find information about it. Um, I didn't look at the hundreds and thousands, you know, many, many, many hundreds of other languages in Africa. So there might be yeah. something that he ran across, but yeah, I don't know. And then um, the last point that I had on here, going a little above that one on page seven, um, was the inclusivity. They have first-person inclusive and exclusive pronouns. Is that something that is just made up, or was that derived? Um, uh, third to uh, last paragraph, in addition are, to basic pronouns. Well, that's a common thing throughout the world, so I don't know. Yeah, I just meant, did he de did he derive that from... I see it's ne, or there's the ne, and then ne. I didn't right. know if that u was derived, or if it was just a form that he came up with. Um, I suspect the u comes from either ku or wu, which are the plural and singular forms of the second-person pronoun themselves. The inclusivity is a bit of a 
surprise. The duel of me and you, ne, and the, and the, no, the plural version of this, which is me and you, or us and you, um, they're not well integrated into the rest of the system. Verbs aren't conjugated with these anywhere mm. else in the textbook. Um, you get a few examples where they're defined, and that's the last you see of them. Um, I don't know which language he got inspiration for these from. Yeah, it's interesting because he has the three, basically, words for we. There's me and you, then us and you, and then us and not you. So it's, uh, they mentioned that in the Wikipedia article. Right, he never goes and says that new excludes the listener. Mm -hmm. It's never defined as exclusive. Hmm. Uh, oh, you didn't even... Okay, you put that... You put new and unu into, into your chart here. But you didn't, um. Right, I didn't put, uh, right, um, the, the, the dual and the, the, the two exclusive forms I didn't put in the big chart because they don't integrate. They don't have separate possessive forms that I ever saw. Mm -hmm. Um, they didn't have, um, the independent subject forms defined anywhere. So I, I wasn't clear to me how they integrated in the rest of the system. There are only a few examples. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's but, interesting. Yeah, those are just some things that I found interesting that, um, you know, the things that could happen in natural languages, I just didn't know if he had plucked them from his own mind or if they had come from languages in that area. I would guess they came from languages that he'd encountered somewhere. I, I mean, some things he's done look to me like he just invented stuff that seemed to make sense. Um, like the initial punctuation. For yeah. example, right? And that's fine. Um, you're going to get a certain amount of that in any um, Oxlang system where you have to harmonize a whole bunch of stuff. And sometimes you're like, okay, we're just going to produce some simplification that is so um, so distant from its original sources that it might as well have just been invented. Like the 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 copying the initial vowels. Yeah, I don't know like, any language that forms plurals that way. That's interesting. Well, yeah, I, that's it's yeah. very like it sounds very like like mental arithmetic. Okay, I have to draw out my my triangle, and sure, it might you may be able to acquire that just as naturally, but it seems very well. You, you, don't, need the, you don't need the triangle to. To create plurals, it's mainly a derivational thing. Yeah, but it is a little bit like take the last vowel and replace the first vowel. Is Sounds how like you... the hokey pokey. I don't think that is any more mentally challenging than reduplication, especially something yeah. crazy like reduplication with changes, which right. people, you know, speakers of languages manage fine all over the world. So I don't think it's that difficult. Yeah, it's. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some natural languages that actually do some sort of grammatical transformation that way. But I, mean, I doubt those, that yeah. it's. I, I I I would I would doubt that it's very common anywhere. Yeah, I've heard of just like you know raising or lowering or rounding and things like that. But this seems kind of um, doesn't seem to follow that kind of form. It's just here's a triangle. You go across the way and the oh, for the derivation. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty arbitrary. Yeah, I yeah. still I still think it's 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 kind of actually surprising to to have the the agreement morphology on the adjective that's basically he's he's taking the noun class agreement like formal system, but he's making it purely phonological. Yep. Instead of having any noun classes, which will be easier to learn, but it's kind of interesting to me that he chose to still have that kind of system in there instead of simply dropping noun classes and everything that's that's attends them. Well, he wanted it to look African and yeah, and that's familiarity with Swahili said we need this. Right. Hmm. <laughs>
So I think that's so hmm? that that wraps up my questions. I was going to say, or my points of interest. Yeah, I think that we can wrap up. The I think the the main upshot upshot of this is that it's an interesting thing to look at, especially for people who are interested in oxlangs and in zonal oxlangs. It's a somewhat different model than what we may be familiar with with uh, things like Esperanto and Volapük. Um, it's, but it's not so unfamiliar that it's like a totally new idea. And the, the interesting thing of him trying to, you know, bring in a bunch of different African sources, um, is, you know, it's consistent with the sort of the ideal that we seem to see him doing. Yep. Um, and it's, it's just an interesting little case study. I don't know how much Unless you're you're thinking about making a zonal IAL, you can draw a lot of inspiration from it. You can draw some interesting little grammatical tidbits from it, but you know, understanding if you want for want naturalness, that there's a lot of things in here that were going to be kind of rare or kind of you know artificial. I mean, one of my purposes in writing this, as I said, was to where possible find etymologies for things. Right. Mm. And the entire paper I wrote is littered with little notes about where things come from. If you find something interesting and it's lucky enough that I was able to identify where it came from, then you can go look and say, oh, this came from Malagasy. I'll go look at Malagasy, which, by the way, will break your brain if once you look at the verbs. Um, <laughs> I'll have to go check that out. Um, right. It has Austronesian alignment and a very rich one. Mm, okay. Um, right. It maintains many of the, the differences. Um so yeah, there's yeah, there's many interesting things to learn from Malagasy. Um, but you know, it might be Hauser or Wolof or whatever. So even looking at it from that standpoint, you can get an idea and say, oh, this came from I don't know, um, Nubian. So let's go look at Nubian, and then you can hunt down that interesting <laughs> idea. And actually, I would actually put forth sort of the idea of we'll link to uh, William's paper, and if people see. You know, that's, you know, a small subset of the data. But if people see places where William couldn't figure out uh, the origin of something, and I'm sure that we have some listeners who are more familiar with African languages in the audience. Yes. That would be very helpful. Tell me. I would like to know. Like I said, I just, I'm going to have to start making blog posts about new things that I found because I only discovered like this Wolof construction a few days ago, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting thing to see. So, yeah. I would love to more. I, I just, it was exhausting writing this paper. I'm like, okay, where did this come from? So I'd have these very complicated and strange Google searches to try to find anything that might point me in the right direction. <laughs> and sometimes I would just, sometimes I would just Google a word and hope something came up. Uh huh. Sometimes yeah. it did. Often it did not. That, that is a thing that can help, that can, uh, possibly help. Yes. But, um, uh, it's unfortunate that the book is so rare. It is. I, I'm. There's an interesting question um, uh, with respect to copyright and languages. Mm-hmm. In the course mm-hmm. of writing this book, or oh, this book, this article, early, I went through the tedious work of putting every single word defined into that thing that I hate so much—a spreadsheet. Uh huh. Can I publish that? Because it would tickle me pink to have Afri Healy develop an online user community. <laughs> Uh, I am not going to, yeah, that is a question 
that um, should go to a lawyer. I realize that, but yes, um, hopefully, you know, maybe people. Well, whatever. That's just my fantasy. The, there's something I could say about that, but I probably don't want to yeah, say. Yeah, that can come out later. Yes, but anyway, for all of that, um, I hope people have uh, are who are interested would like to and who want to uh, take a look at this can you know uh, take a look at uh, William's paper for now. Apparently, this is now the like the best source of information on Alfred Healy. That uh, unless the, yes, unless you can get to the University of Chicago. Yeah, if you can, if you can get the actual book. Right. Um, yeah, and uh, what's in what's it? Chicago? Oh, it's not in Chicago. It's um, it is in Chicago. It's in Northwestern. North blah blah blah. Northwestern. Oh, okay. The book is there. That yes, my copy of the book is in Northwestern, but that one's missing pages. You want the one from uh. <laughs> Oh, where did the other one come from? I forget. Ah. If you look at World, anyway, if you look at World Cat, you'll find the, the five copies in the United States of the second edition. But anyway, uh, barring fi- finding that, uh, uh, you have we have the the nice little paper, and uh, we can uh, link to that um, and uh, see what people think about it. And other than that. I don't think we have anything else to show, so I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.